Welcome to Bad Law, Worst Facts. I'm Michael Tacklow. And Jeff McCarthy. Today we got Randy Searles on. He just got a $352 million verdict about two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. that's ridiculous. A record, Texas record-setting verdict. Uh, no punitives. These were only actual damages. He'll tell us exactly how it happened, but essentially it is at, you know, is it George Bush? George Bush uh, Airport? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, it's a United Airlines worker. It's a wing walker. I only know all this because I watched the trial and I learned a lot about uh, airport protocol and I'm not going to sign up for that job <laughs> no. anytime soon. Um, but it's one of those guys who do the, uh, have the little, what is it? Like a little, like the little, the, the cones, the, the, yeah, the, little the cones and they're like moving things mm-hmm, back, yeah. you know? And so, so this guy is moving it back. And when that happens, no, no one's supposed to move. Yeah. There's not supposed to be any car moving, anything like mm-hmm. that. And the reason is because the guy is guiding a huge airplane back. He's yeah. kind of got things focused. Yeah. And someone decides to just keep driving his vehicle, smashes into the client. Client jumps up in the air, hits the hard concrete, and is paralyzed from the chest down. Has a seat, a, a stroke two days later and uh, loses the ability to use his right hand, his right arm. So apparently not very many great settlement offers before and randy says all right we're just going to try the case you know i watched the trial and and jeff you watched too and really i think randy wanted on dismantling these experts oh yeah like every single expert it was just it was almost like why did you hire these guys yeah you know you know i I mean there was the case was great facts uh, bad facts well well yeah yeah bad, <laughs> yeah. bad, 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 bad facts but it's yeah, a weird industry yeah but uh but also a incredible damage bottle yeah um but it was very it was very obvious from the from the jump uh that randy knew this case knew these experts backwards and forwards and to see what he i mean it was masterful it, yeah. it, and and we'll talk about it in the, in the episode but i really think COVID has given us one thing, if nothing else, the Zoom trial, which may not be great for trials themselves, although yeah. we're all, you know what happens, great lawyers figure out great ways to do things. Yeah. And, but what it is given is the opportunity for us from our office to, to just jump in and watch some of the very best CLEs live yeah. in person as it's happening. Yeah. And uh, if, if, People aren't taking advantage of this. I don't know why they're not. You know, it, it's just incredible to put it on a, on a side monitor and then just really get pumped up. I mean, there was a couple expert uh, cross exams that, I mean, just I was taking notes just on Randy's pacing, you know, yeah. and, and how he was asking the question, how quickly, how much pausing, and and it set the tone and the mood, and it really conveyed so much. Uh, but you know, I mean, obviously, Randy is a fantastic, if not probably one of the very best trial lawyers. In the nation, I yeah. mean, I mean, uh, I, I think you could put him up against literally anybody, and that's exactly what happened. He went up against Rusty Harden, yeah. who was amazing as well. Yeah, he's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, he took some missteps on this one. Yeah, 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 some pretty bad missteps, but uh, overall, obviously, fantastic jury, very likable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it just it was just a bad defense. It was just. Um, but to be fair, missteps. Uh, hindsight twenty twenty. They're missteps because they didn't work. Right. You know, no, no, I, I, when I was watching, I was like, this is a <laughs> legitimately. I was like, this is uh, this is a a uh, gift wrapped up for you to open up. I mean, I was I was sitting next to you. I was like, what is going on yeah, here? Right. You know, you can't you can't say we take some fault. 
yeah uh, some fault in this and then put up an expert who's saying well sleep affects you right. like okay this hey, is not great all right mike you you can go you can go on team i'm gonna criticize rusty hearted i'm gonna stay on this <laughs> side of the fence and say rusty you did a great job with he, what you had to work he did. with he did a great job don't get me wrong but there <laughs> there were some things i was like Oof, yeah it was rough it was yeah, a rough yeah. day for him um and so you know uh facts are they are what they are uh I don't know what the adjuster or their team was thinking on this one. It's got to just be damage control. They know they're cutting a huge check and they're just trying to lessen it as much as possible. And I think that's the core difference between the plaintiff's bar and the defense bar is truly, truly, we believe in these cases. And, and the, on the defense, you just don't. I mean, you're billing by the hour. You, I, mean, you, I mean, you're literally just trying to get paid and move on. You're not trying to save anybody. The co- these companies aren't going to go bankrupt. Yeah. You know, but by this ver- even this is a huge verdict they got that money it's fine i mean it's a huge company there are yeah. 26 airports or something like exactly. that so it's a huge company yeah so i don't know i, I didn't understand it uh, i mean i'm sure settlement talks were probably not great no uh, and uh they probably wish they would have came back mm-hmm. yeah yeah, probably. But yeah, this is it's 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 I'm really excited to hear what Randy's got to say. I'm 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 excited to get, you know, be put in that room as much as possible because I can't wrap my brain around even hearing some of the uh the the pre the pre-suit offers. Yeah. Some of those walk away numbers are pretty humongous. Yeah, and so that's the thing, right? So, you know, when I saw that, I was like we need him on here for two reasons. One, I want him to talk about dismantling experts and two, focus groups. Yeah, like, focus groups. You know, like and and what what do you do? Like how how as an attorney do you say no? I'm sure it was like twenty million dollars or something ridiculous on the table or yeah. forty, right? Uh, what do you do when you're like, nah, that's not enough? Uh, we're gonna we're gonna try this case to get a huge verdict. Man, that that change in mindset, I think you know, you bring that to any attorney and that changes their game. Well, we heard we heard Lanier say the same thing. He's got yeah. that same story where every time his offer, his demand kept going up, and the the adjusters kept getting confused. And he's like, "We're two ships passing in the night, man. You know, you had these opportunities. You got to get on my same, you know, page here." Yeah. And uh, you know, I don't know. That, I'm just really uh, excited for this. I'm really grateful that we have these opportunities, and that, and quite frankly, Randy who might be one of the busiest uh, attorneys probably in, in, in Texas. I, yeah. I, I guarantee in Houston for sure to carve out some time to, to drop this knowledge is I mean, so appreciative yeah. and uh, to our um, tens of listeners. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, actually there's actually been a lot of people listening. Yeah. Uh, there's thousands uh, now. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. So, really uh, thank is. you guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So hope, uh, I, I hope y'all get as much out of it as we do. Cause we certainly do. Yeah. And uh, last thing is, uh, I've actually tried that linear uh, strategy. Mm-hmm. That defense attorney doesn't like me. No. Now. Yeah. So we'll, I'll talk to you about that later. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're not here to get liked by defense. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Randy, how's it going? It's going great today. Uh, I hear that you just got one of the largest, if not the largest, verdict in Harris County. Is that right? I think it's the largest actual damage verdict for any one person in Texas, the best we can figure out. You didn't even ask for punitives on this one. Is that right? Right. It was just an actual damages uh, award. Okay. You you got to put us in this room. I mean, what, what, are, what are the facts? What happened? Yeah. So... 
we have a, a, a really good uh, employee of United Airlines. He was a wing walker. A wing walker is someone who you see uh, carrying those orange wands that walk planes in and out from the terminal on arrival or departure. And one of their jobs is to get the planes back, push back uh, without their engines on, back onto the away from the terminal, onto the tarmac where they can turn their engines on and take off on their own. So when a plane is pushing back, there's lots of warning signals. Everybody's supposed to come to a stop around that plane so that the plane can get pushed back. And in this instance, uh, the plane was pushing back over a vehicle service road and the defendant driver who was driving for a fueling company, which is significant in all of this, uh, he didn't see the warning signs and he kept going and well, we said he crossed over the line and struck our wing walker, who is a pedestrian, at a higher rate of speed than allowed, which should have been zero. It caused him to become immediately paralyzed from just below the chest down. And then he had a very significant stroke two days later uh, in the hospital right after he had completed his spinal surgery. So you have a very catastrophic injury in a uh, ecosystem of the airport with a fuel company uh, truck that has... Uh, for lots of reasons, lots of uh, insurance coverage, and failed to follow lots of rules that were out there. I mean, I got to ask. I mean, what what are the defenses here? I mean, what were you you know what were you dealing with when it came up to okay, what are the issues that we really need to try and focus on? Well, the defense was from the start. The driver came out, and this was all on body cam, and said the sun got in his eyes, and he wasn't able to see. Um, really anything. He couldn't see the plane, which would have been to his right. He couldn't see the wing walker, our client. He couldn't see the lights or the warning signs. The plane was actually moving. It was a big, it was a big uh, uh, air, airplane over 100 feet long. And he said, our guy, Mr. Cruz, stepped out onto the roadway and he hit him. And that was the defense that they tried to work with and work around. Yeah. And that doesn't make any sense. I mean, I, I watched the trial and, um, you know, that video was shown, you know, probably at least 10 times during the trial, uh, at least harped on uh, pretty significantly. And essentially, it's this huge airplane pulling back. And from what I understand, when an airplane's pulling back like that, everybody's supposed to, any vehicle at least, is supposed to stop completely. And right, yeah. The, the video shows not only just the airplane pulling back, but it shows how much traffic is on a tarmac, uh, ground vehicle traffic. And uh, because getting planes off on time is important. Um, all the ground vehicles really just follow this rule. And that's pretty much uh, a universal rule uh, throughout, the, throughout the world. And, and, and speaking of watching the video, and just like you said earlier, that we were watching the trial, if nothing that has come out of, you know, the, probably the biggest positive that's come out of this global pandemic, at least for Harris County and the trials, is the ability to log in and watch some of the very best lawyers in their craft trying cases you know from, from your office and to sit back and to be immersed in this and to be pulled in. I, I mean it's it's probably one of the best cle's i've ever been a part of just sitting back and watching this trial and uh and, and, and everything you did um when when you're preparing for a trial and you know as things have changed have you started preparing differently for the fact of uh, the Zoom elements and, and what you knew you were up against with, with such, there's so much impact that you had to make in this trial. Uh, was there anything that you did differently as you were uh, getting ready for this? 
Yes, there was. In this instance, we knew we were going to have Zoom witnesses. And that makes that makes it a little bit challenging because you have to prepare your Zoom witnesses um, by looking at their background and making sure everything is working okay. And sure enough, we had one witness who uh, did her Zoom testimony from her car. Uh, and that wouldn't have been what we thought originally the ideal thing, but it really made it seem more genuine. This lady was talking from her car, not there to tell any type of lie or untruth. And she was one of the more genuine witnesses that came across as uh, likable and communicated a lot of the damages in the case. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I, I mean, that's something that's really incredible to think about of how much you want to make everybody credible and leaning into, like you said, you know, this, this person is there just to be, to be very, very honest, because I feel like there was a lot of moments, uh, particularly in the experts, that they were very uncredible. <laughs> and, and, and you pulled that out of them very, very quickly in the best way. Well, and the defense had the same thing. We, we chuckled because their, one of their life care planners was doing it from her home. And she was talking about, you know, what are the needs? And she had a very beautiful home in the background. And one of the, one of the persons who was watching said she had a $20,000 couch in her, you know, in her, in the back of her, um, of her uh, shot. And then uh, she said, Oh, I'm so sorry. The, the, the yard people are here in case you're hearing the, the, the lawnmowers in the background and you could see the defense lawyers just cringe and they were saying, I hope she doesn't say the pool guy is here next to clean the pool. <laughs> and, uh, we had a laugh about that. And the final one was hopefully the maid wouldn't come and start feather dusting <laughs> the area behind her at the same time. Yeah. yeah she, they, they, sorry. I'm having my Fabergé eggs cleaned this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the lawyers on the other side were excellent lawyers and, and, uh, man, their lead trial lawyer is just one of the best ever. So it created a lot of challenges, but you can always get laughs out of trials like that too. Yeah. And they fought you every step of the way, right? So they, they one thing that threw me off is, uh, so Rusty Harden was a defense attorney and people in the Houston area know Rusty Harden. And if you don't, you can look him up. He's, he's defended some of the biggest, you know, uh, cases out there. I, I think he did Roger Clemens way back in the day as well, mm -hmm. too. It's really good with the jury. He, he goes, you know, we, we're not saying we're not completely at fault. Puts up experts that say, you know, it's not our fault. Um, and, uh, you know, but kind of goes through and, and they challenge you on everything. They challenge you on the medical significantly. I'm not even talking about just futures, but, you know, you said earlier about the client having a stroke about two days after. They challenge you on that and say, oh, he would have had a stroke either way. Uh, in the future. I mean, it's not because of this incident and kind of push you on that. How do you deal with that? How do you dismantle these experts? Because I'll tell you, Randy, I, out of everything, that was probably my favorite part is you kind of sitting with these experts and pulling them apart, you know, bit by bit. Well, you know, when you're right, you're right in, the, in these instances. And that was a stretch to say on that stroke issue. Uh, his, he would have had a stroke anyway. They actually had an expert neurosurgeon they did not call to testify to that and we thought we could could dismantle him if he was going to even testify about that he was from houston we called i think the world's best expert on this particular uh disease called moya moya and and that expert uh did really really well but what was unknown at the time is we said to him well let's talk about you know what do these stroke victims face from a recovery standpoint what are their hopes and one of the things as a lawyer you really have to to focus in on is you have to give the victims hope for recovery and the expert from from stanford he lit up with 
hey, these are some great things on the horizon. There's some things that we can do for these patients now, but there's going to be more in the future. And that gives hope. And that was one of the reasons I think the jury awarded full uh, damages in the medical area is this guy has hope to have uh, some of his life return to him as technology advances. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so they also had a social awareness expert. I mean, I'm probably butchering that. What, what was this guy? And, you know, how did you think about, um, you know, kind of dismantling his opinion? Yeah, so they brought a guy who was an expert uh, in sleep. And, and he basically said, you know, he tried to, to look very specifically, but we made it broader. He said that our client who worked a lot of hours had not had enough sleep for a period of time before quality sleep. And because of that, he didn't uh, use situational awareness properly being aware of this van that was closing in on him. But when you cross-examined him or boiled it down a little bit, what it basically said was anybody who doesn't get eight hours of quality sleep per night is a risk. So I would have been that for all of my life because I don't think I've ever gotten eight hours of quality sleep. But I think most people are like that. Most people can't say, honestly, I get eight hours of quality sleep per night. And so that means everybody in the jury was at risk. And then one of the really great things, this particular judge, Judge Sandel, he allows jurors to ask questions. And in the process, the witnesses uh, testifies, the jury is sent back. Uh, to determine if they have any questions that the jurors can then write out questions. They're anonymous. The questions are submitted to the judge. The judge discusses them with the lawyers and then determines if he can ask the questions. But the defendant driver uh, was on the stand and one of the jurors asked a question, how much did you sleep the night before? Now, remember the standard, it's got to be eight hours. And the driver who had listened to all this testimony said, I think I probably got six or seven hours of sleep that night. Um, and you know, the jurors just, if there was any credibility left of their sleep expert said, well, it's all gone because your guy didn't obviously get the requisite sleep. Wow. That, I mean, that's, that's great. And then uh, by the way, how great is judge Sandal for doing, you know, these innovative things, um, and, and working with, I mean, just making the legal process a little bit better, a little bit more fair. Transparent. Yeah. yeah. It, I, it, it's funny. Uh, nowhere near on your level, Randy, but I had a similar, I was in a JP court outside of Houston, and uh, there's one judge that allows questions. However, uh, in, tr in true JP court, they, they don't vet these questions. So someone just, <laughs> someone raises their hand. I was halfway through cross-examination and just, you know, Mary Sue raised her hand and, and uh, said, well, we got a question. I was like, oh, Let's hear that question. And she said, who took that picture? I was like, well, it doesn't really matter. doesn't matter who took the picture. Uh, totally irrelevant to what we're talking about. Uh, but, but I love that idea that, that we are involving the jury more so that we know that this is going to be a more fair. It's, the outcome is more just, more fair, and we all feel good with it at the end, good, bad, or indifferent. Oh, it really engages the jury, and I, I also applaud him for doing that. And I've had other judges that do that and would encourage you know, every judge who doesn't want to do that or think there's some drawback to, to call these judges who have participated and, and let them share their experiences because jurors definitely feel more engaged. Hey, while we're on that, you know, we'll move on. I'm sure our viewers want to hear other things, but there was one question on there that I was just like, uh, what? And that was uh, the jury came back and asked um, something along the lines of 
how are interest rates going to be affected by with uh, the China market or something like that? Like that? <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a great question uh, because there was discussion uh, at some point in time about the numbers and how it would be invested. And we had a forensic economist and they had an economist. And this person was a real thinker and studier, whoever asked that question, but they wanted to know. You know, if this money was invested one way, how is what's going on in China going to affect affect those investments? And the judge rightfully said, we probably can't answer that question, although it's a great question. (laughs) I don't think anyone could actually answer that question. (laughs) Um, So tell me about these uh, these life care planners. So you dismantled their life care planner. I legitimately dismantled it. And, you know, one thing I want to focus on is you know, the question about hospitalizations in the future and also the nursing staff. That was a big contention between the two parties, right, is how much nursing is really required, um, what kind of staff is required to help uh, this client for the rest of his life. Right. We were able to play some, we shot, shot some video of kind of a what a normal day would be like in the life of Mr. Cruz, and it really is waking up at 4 o'clock just so he can be completely um, showered, and ready for breakfast by seven o'clock. It's that long of a process. It's a very long process and it requires someone who knows what they're doing. He's living at home and we had a life care planner that came in and said, I'm going to tell you what the best thing is for his long life. And that is to be around uh, people who can provide this care 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And it's not reasonable to think that a CNA is going to be able to show up every day or that the wife or that the children have to do this. And so um, it was a pretty large number of probably $29.8 million in future life care plan that we put up. And that was just the minimum. They could do more. And the other side uh, contrasted that by saying, well, you don't want to put your husband in a facility. And of course, no one does. And right. our, the wife was wonderful. She said, if he has to go into facility, I would go with him if it's at all possible. And she actually had done that in the hospital. She stayed with him. Uh, but the other part of that was we could bring that same quality of care to his house. It's going to cost about the same or more. And their expert had to agree with that. And once she had to agree with that, the jury was going to have to say, does this guy need more care or less care? And uh, ultimately, as you said, where they lost the most credibility, they said he should need no hospitalizations the rest of his life. And at that point in time, he'd already been hospitalized twice and and so one of the jurors, again, asking a question, uh, said, if you said he needed no hospitalizations, how do you account for the two he happens to have? And the, and the judge did ask that question. And uh, the witness, the life care planner said, well, maybe he will need a couple. So we'll give him a couple, maybe plus a couple or more. And so it, it became clear they were shooting from the hip without understanding how badly hurt he was. And, and the jurors saw through that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's absolutely right. So, you know, the dismantling experts, it was, I mean, uh, you know, legitimately, Randy, if there was a way to cut up, if someone has video out there, like that should be the CLE. That's absolutely, yeah. because every single expert you took was, it was just fantastic. And you were able to really break it down in a really uh, quick and reasonable fashion for the jury. And I know that there was a lot of conflicts during the trial. So you were kind of flipping on witnesses, you would bring this witness, bring that witness, and then you'd have to change it because of people's, uh, you know, time periods, but it still flowed pretty well. Um, so, you know, it was really impressive, but I, I mean, I got to ask you, this is not, this is not a car wreck case. 
Uh, this is not uh, soft tissue injuries. We're talking about real life situation. This guy's going to need treatment for the rest of his life. Uh, it's got to be a stressful situation going into this um, with probably some amount of money on the table and saying that's not enough and trying trying the case to to get a three hundred fifty two million dollar verdict. You know what what got you to to get in that mindset? Well, so we knew his damages were awful. In the first two years, he had two million dollars in medical bills, and we knew that our our life care plan was going to be thirty million dollars. And they got close to $30 million in their offer, ultimately, but they didn't even get the medicals done. So uh, on the one hand, you could say, uh, boy, that's turning down a lot of money. On the other hand, you could say, as we did, hey, we're going to make sure this guy's taken care of and given the best opportunity. And if the jury does believe what the defendant said, and they argued for a 50-50 responsibility, and they argued to give us $22 million, that means that the jury would give us 11 million and we were turning down you know more than twice that so there is some pressure there but on the other hand we're saying well let's make sure this guy our client is taken care of and that's the one thing then the second thing is is we did focus groups and i'll tell you one quick story about that we did focus groups every focus group gave more than they offered um, most focus groups gave well into the nine figures and that gives you some amount of reassurance but people who do focus groups will tell you that the numbers are not always most reliable. But what gave us the most, most reassurance was in our last focus group, we had a, uh, we both, both did presentations. Um, and I learned a lot. People, I encourage people to do focus groups. You can do them inexpensively. Uh, I had uh, another lawyer that we work with, Bradley. He argued for the plaintiff and I argued for the defense and I argued hard. So I learned a lot about how to defend this case. And that helped. When we finished, one of the focus members said, um, I've heard this case before, and that was odd to us. And so uh, we took her aside and said, can you tell us more about that? She said, oh, I heard this case uh, in June. And frankly, you guys did a better job of presenting the defense side of it. And I felt good about myself. I was a good defense lawyer. <laughs> so, um, and she, she said, we said, well, what happened? She said, well, we, we liked the driver. The defendant driver. Uh, we uh, thought he had a series of excuses that we really didn't believe. And we found against the driver and we awarded nine figures. And that was their focus group. And once we heard that, we knew that it wasn't just our stilted focus group. This guy's hurt really bad and he deserves, you know, more than what the jury awarded, but we are appreciative of what the jury awarded. So what goes into the decision-making to use a focus group? Is it uh, the, the issues of the case, the, the magnitude, the damage model, just internally when you're going through your checklist saying, hey, this is one we're going to use a focus group on, you know, how do you target those particular matters? Well, I've done focus groups a lot. And you can, like I say, you can do them cheaply for less than five or $600. Uh, and you can do them within your office. And I encourage people because they give you dialogue and feedback on issues uh, they give you angles that maybe you haven't thought of because you're so deep into the weeds, and it really helps. In this instance, we used a jury consultant named Robert Hirschhorn. He's picked jur juries that have given billions of dollars. He's extraordinarily good, and he he developed the focus group for us. Um, he helped us lay out the issues that we thought were the strengths and weaknesses of the case, and then the jurors, the focus jurors, gave us lots of good feedback on uh, themes, on the way things are phrased. Um, on some of the issues that we wanted to get ahead of. So for those who saw the opening statement, 
uh, we did show the video. We showed it three times, but it was about 40 minutes, no, maybe 30 minutes into it after we gave the whole setup because the, one look at the video through our focus group says, well, I think that Mr. Cruz, our client, he didn't, you know, he, he maybe he wasn't doing the right things, but they didn't know the background. And so once we explained the background and all the rules and regulations at the airport, after that, they said, Mr. Cruz did nothing wrong. So again, none of our focus groups put any fault on our driver ever. And the other side's focus group never put any fault on our driver. So that gave us reassurance. All that said, as you said, Rusty Harden's one of the best. He, he would pick away, and when he argued to the jury in closing that they should put 50% fault on our, on our Mr. Cruz, you know, we were, we were not, uh, we were worried that a jury might, uh, you know, go with this, this very engaging lawyer. We've heard, we had heard stories that when uh, Mr. Harden had won in the past, that jurors would want to take pictures with him. And so that, that was a factor. That was a factor. I will tell you one, one other funny story from our focus group, though. We did after the jurors had in this group had uh, deliberated, we came back in and asked some hypotheticals. And we said, what if you heard that uh, Rusty Harden was defending the airline? Uh, I mean, the uh, ally, the, the fueling company. And one of the jurors said, that guy is a real badass. They must've done something really wrong to hire him. Yeah. So maybe, maybe it worked against him. Yeah. I, you know, that's, I've heard that before too. Uh, I had a brief run in with Rusty when I was at the DA's office and, and the same thing, the same thing that the, they came back and they said, well, you know, if, if Rusty Harden is on this, what did this, you know, they, he, you know, they had to really bring in the big guns for this. So it's interesting how sometimes that kind of backfires a little bit. Yeah. It cuts both ways. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, you know, focus groups are, Fantastic. I've, I've, you know, worked on a few cases with focus groups and you learn a lot from them and you kind of change your, you may change your dynamic uh, in certain ways. So, uh, you know, for that opening, did you end up changing how you portrayed the video? Were you explaining it at the beginning or did you change anything because of the focus group? Well, we've done a lot of informal focus groups, just showing it to people without any explanation saying, give us your reaction to the video. Yeah. And we had a sense uh, from that, but we again went with the same approach, and we played the video for the focus group. Then we got their reactions immediately, and they were mixed. But we knew if we gave the full understanding of the ecosystem of the airport environment, that they would say, um, you know, every pedestrian has when a plane's backing up. Every plane when a plane is backing up has the right of way, no exceptions. And that's what the jury ultimately concluded as well. How long did the jury deliberate? Yeah, so they went out on, we argued the case on Thursday afternoon. They went out and uh, they elected their foreperson. Um, and then they went home Thursday night. They deliberated all day Friday. Uh, and then they said, we're going home again. And then they came back Monday and got through a half a day Monday and came back with their, with their uh, verdict. That's crazy. Yeah, I can, and I can't imagine, even us reading it, you know, when, when, when I can't imagine hearing that live and writing yeah. it down and just thinking of those, those awards. I mean, I, I got to imagine that you had anticipated something like this because in your head, you believed in this case you've, from, from, from the very beginning. And whenever we've talked about this, you, you had, you knew where this case was at. I mean, you knew the value of this, it seems. And then, so was it a surprise when the jury came back or was it more just validation? Like, yes, of course, this is, we, we foresaw this coming. 
Well, so the biggest concern was that question one is was negligence, and there's three blanks. It's was it the driver? Was it United Airlines? And United Airlines was in because the defendants uh, brought them as a responsible third party. So they, that's why they were in. We didn't sue United. Yeah. And then was Mr. Cruz, our client. And so the first one was, yes, that was no surprise, really. Although there's always a worry that a jury will think this is just an accident, so no one's at fault. There's that huge worry in your mm -hmm. mind. The second blank was United Airlines. Were they responsible? No, that wasn't a huge thing. And then the third blank was, was Mr. Cruz, the plaintiff responsible? They said no there. I know my wife and I both breathed a huge sigh of relief there because that means they're going to give us at least $22 million. Uh, and that's because that's what the defendants argued for in closing. Defendants argued to give us $22 million. And then they found fault on Allied uh, as well, the company. And when they got to the first number, um, which was past uh, physical pain, and there was lots of evidence about how painful this was. They were $15 million, and that was a good start. And then past mental anguish, well, that was another 15. He said, okay, we've beaten the offer, uh, and that's good with the first two blanks. And then they went on to award him um, about 258 or $260 million to him. His wife uh, was awarded for loss of consortium, uh, over $25 million, and then each of his kids for their loss of parental consortium, over $20 million as well. Wow. And then, and that conversation with the family, explaining to them what has now transpired, uh, I, c I can only imagine how they were feeling and, and what that sense of relief, closure, and ultimate, you know, I mean, ultimate justice if, you know, for that family. Well, there's vindication because, you know, they were accused, the defendants were accusing their dad, their husband of really contributing significantly to his own injuries. And, and I think that was where they were most uh, offended. You know, the money was one thing, but when I called her and it was, it was live streamed, the verdict was live streamed. I said, Hey, you know, we won. And she's a very quiet person. Uh, the husband made most of the decisions of the family uh, up until this point and then she had to become the husband and the dad as well and made the decision she's very quiet and she said well thank you and that's all she said she's a very very humble uh very good person and the jury saw that as well and that just gave me chills when you said that well thank you because i i feel like behind those few words there's probably volumes of 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 what yeah. she really meant with that i mean yeah she's she's uh an amazing person. We, in closing, and she's a, she's an attractive uh, woman. She, we had pictures just literally months before this and the energy that she had and the life she had in her face. And she came to trial and testified live and the change in the last two years of her appearance, you could just see how much it weighed on her. And I said, in closing, something to the effect of, you know, this has aged her and three women jurors shook their heads. Yes, they had seen, you could see what it was. And, it was nothing on our part, but uh, we didn't certainly set it up. But that's just the reality. If you compare those pictures just a few months before and what's happened two years later, you know, I've always thought, and just for my years on the defense, whenever I was defending, you know, on not lead defending. Look, I was, you know, one of the the many minions on some of these bigger cases. <laughs> but I always thought in my head that if some of these larger corporations and companies and 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 large defendants, if they had taken a different position of saying 
we, you know, we are so sorry. This is a, a terrible tragedy. You know, obviously, we didn't do this on purpose. We're so sorry this happened. How can we make it right and work with the victims? Um, they can ultimately get out of this way cheaper. I, I mean, I, I feel like just right. like, it's the offense that the, they're pushing it back on the plaintiff. Well, so they took a strategy. There's a book called Nuclear Verdicts, and it was written by a lawyer out in California, a defense lawyer. And he'll be the first to say that plaintiff's lawyers do a great job of helping each other out and educating. And we really do. And I can't thank enough people, plaintiff's lawyers from uh, Houston and Texas and across the nation who gave us ideas and, and strategies. The defense bar, though, is not the same. They value their uh, clients uh, uh, significantly. They keep them very close to themselves. But this lawyer wrote a book called Nuclear Verdicts. And we could tell that was a strategy they were using from the beginning because their driver would use a phrase that's really common throughout there is, I accept some responsibility, which sounds really good. But what are you accepting responsibility for? And that's where it backfired. And so the plaintiff's bar has developed a counter strategy, strategy to nuclear verdicts. And it actually hurts them more than helps them. So they decided on an approach that they didn't know we had a counter uh, punch to it. And we think our counter punch is stronger than their efforts to say, let's all be reasonable, you know, and give this guy, you know, a dollar fifty. I think at one point we said 53 cents an hour for what he was going through. Wow. And that is a great point because the defense bar is very much like that. And I, and I remember that when we were there uh, and when I was on the defense side, uh, a comment that we would say a lot is, you know, look, if we lose this, this is X amount of our business, you know, 20, 30, some of our clients are 40% of, you know, our business. Whereas on the plate, you know, that's one, it's just one case. It's just one client of many. Uh, so there's a ton of risk uh, on the defense side. And it's, it is very interesting that they don't share at all. And I, and I definitely puts them in the, uh, not in a best, the best position, I think in trial, especially whenever, uh, I mean, we, I feel like on the plaintiff's bar, we all celebrate wins like yours. Yeah. I mean, we all do. I feel like we all won, Randy. <laughs> we, said, yeah. we won with you, you know? <laughs> and so it's a great feeling to see, hey, look, this can be done and this is how to do it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's... I I agree with you. Uh, there, over the last couple of years, there were some huge verdicts that came out. I would send them to the defense team and say, you need to have this in your files. This is a type of thing we're talking about. There's been some great trucking verdicts. There have been some great injury verdicts, and I would send it. And every that's why plaintiff's lawyers help each other. Your win helps my case. My win helps your case. And the defense bar needs to know that the plaintiff's lawyers are better educated through COVID. We've had more time to sit and watch CLEs and talk to each other uh, through uh, chats and, and listservs and things like that. The plaintiff's bar came out better from COVID than the defense bar by far. Oh, yeah, definitely. Absolutely. And also, too, just the collaborative nature. I mean, when you know, we know our place in the world and where our firm sits. And sometimes when we get cases that are, uh, you know, over our skis, to, you know, big for us, and we need, uh, you know, so, someone like you to come in on this and say, hey, let, let's work together and really make this thing happen. Let's do right by our client. And I, that's the most exciting thing about the, uh, the plaintiff's bar to, to me. Uh, and especially what you're what you're doing, because now look, we know who the uh, the go to guy is. So, so <laughs> this is where we're going with these cases, you know. Um, but uh, I, I got to imagine with with all these verdicts, there's a lot of people. I mean, there's already a ton reaching out to you. It's 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 got to be exciting to to be in that position. Yeah, we have. We've had uh, a lot of good calls. We've hired on as lead counsel on two major cases since that time. 
but we got to believe in the case and that we looked at them, both of them, and they're both cases that deserve believing in. And you got to have, as you said, collaborative co-counsel say, let's work together because none of us have all the right answers in every case. Nobody does. Working together, we're going to get a much better result. And that's why uh, I always say we have a team of lawyers at Sorrell's Law, not one person. And the result of our trial, which included uh, Bradley, my wife, Alex, and everybody here uh, participated, giving something, including the law clerks, uh, ideas on PowerPoint and things like that. It's, it's just a team victory. So what's the uh, decompression look like after something like this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, because I know you're already on to the next one because I mean, you have a full docket of, of, of a lot of cases and a lot of work coming at you. But how much time do you give yourself just to sit back and say, all right, you know, this, this, this was great and just soak it in for a minute before you go punch the clock one more time. Did you have, do you have some type of technique? No, and I've, I've heard there's one other really great lawyer here. He says he takes like a month off and I can see why, because, you know, you're sleeping three or four hours a night during trial and, you know, all, all weekend is work all weekend and you're missing your family. And, and, uh, but the, on the other side of that, you also have other clients you have to take care of. And so every deposition has been pushed back. And the day after the verdict, I had to take a, pretty significant medical malpractice doctor expert uh, uh, deposition that I had to be ready for. It was a trial deposition. So it required another night of like three or four hours of sleep, even though we won because we had to be ready for that. And, uh, you know, it's just part of it. But if you love what you're doing, it's not that it's not that hard. If you don't like this work, you should go do something that you really like because Life is much better doing something that you enjoy, you know, whether it's 15 hours a day or 10 or eight or 20. Well, I'll tell you what, with three or four hours of sleep, I think that situational awareness expert would have a, 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 a field day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, so he walked into it because he's from Chicago and, and in his deposition, I said, do you know who Michael DeBakey is? And Michael DeBakey is a famous cardiovascular surgeon who worked until about age of hundred. And he would brag that he would get two or three hours of sleep a night. And, um, in his deposition, he didn't know who he was. I said, well, be sure and be ready because I'm going to ask you during trial. And they got ahead of it and said, Mr. Sorrell said he's going to ask you about Michael DeBakey. Have you looked into him? Yes, he did this and this, this. But he still was a danger to others. And I think that was not a good you know, look for one of the best surgeons in, you know, in the history of Houston to say he was a danger to others when Saudi princes would come to him for their heart surgery. Wow. Yeah, we have things named after him here, so yeah. you probably should read the room there. Uh, <laughs> so was there ever a time that you felt like, all right, we're home, you know, this is it, you know, we've done everything we can and we leave it to the to the jury, but, you know, at any point in time in trial where you're just like, okay, I think the jury's with me on it. Well, there were some times when the jurors would uh, laugh at some of their witnesses when they would make statements that just were had made no sense at all, and... They, you know, they tried to keep a theme uh, going that would just break apart. One of the, the more fun times was um, uh, Mr. Hardin had one of his witnesses on talking about the defendant driver saying he's a good man. He had done all these things in his life and he, he by all appearances, uh, you know, raised some fine kids. They're all educated. He said, well, how would you rate him as a driver? Because he, he was exceptional. And once you hear that rating, there's something that all of us can fall back on. So this wasn't planned. And we went to, when it came over, we said, okay, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how you rate him um, as a driver on this event. And I had a, the, the board turned. I was able to write up where the jury could see and he couldn't see. 
um, the letters A, B, C, D, and F. And the jury knew exactly what that was. It's a report card, of course. And I said, let's see how you rate him on this instance. So I turned it around to him. I said, how do you rate him on this instance? What grade do you give him? And he uh, fumbled and stumbled and, you know, he finally said, okay, I give him a D and uh, that's good. And the guy who was running our video, he said he looked at his watch at that time and he wanted to see how long it would take to get him to go to an F. He said 15 minutes to the minute. I got him to say, I changed my opinion. I give him an F <laughs> and that helped a lot. They called the driver back up on the stand in their case as their last witness. And we said, okay, now your supervisor gave you an F. <laughs> what grade do you give yourself? And he says, I give myself a B, like boy. Oh. And, and I think the jury, if they ever had any sympathy for him, they said, no, that's it. I mean, you violated, we wrote down 18 different rules he violated, and he still gave himself a B. So that, that felt good. All that said, uh, Rusty Harden gave a very uh, compelling closing argument that we only breathe a sigh of relief when they said no negligence as to our client. Yeah. Yeah. I think even with the, the defendant driver, you went through significant rules that I think you had on a, like a large poster board and you went through and, okay, you don't agree with this one. Let's talk about it. Just kept going through it. So, you know, I, I think you did a great job with proving that up, but yeah, I can imagine with, you know, Rusty doing his thing in the closing, you're, you're still pretty, pretty stressed out until, until you've gotten the actual verdict. Yeah. Um, he gave us one gift in closing though. Because we did ask for a lot of money. And he said, you know, this system isn't about creating generational wealth. And I don't know who thought of that idea. Um, but that was a bad idea because I've been personally been involved with people who have had these type of injuries. And we turned that quickly. And they didn't, we're not trying to create generational wealth. Unfortunately, we're having to respond to what they created, which was a generational burden. And that the generation starts with his wife having to take care of him. That generate the next generation is his kids who are going to have to take care of him from time to time, and they do. And his his uh, oldest son was twenty, and the, his life expectancy was twenty two years. I said they will have children. His children will have children. So his grandchildren are going to be burdened with having to care for him as well. So they didn't create generational wealthier folks. They created a generational burden. And I don't think they thought through that phrase uh, very well when they used it in closing. No, absolutely not. That was a really stepping it on that one. I mean, I mean, you could ask anybody, any any plaintiff, any client that I've ever talked. It does not matter how much money we put in their hand, whether it's a small soft tissue uh, all the way up to a wrongful death. Everybody I've talked to would trade that money to not go through the experience. It, yeah. it does, there's no amount of money. There's never ever. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's no amount of money, which is one of the things you have to worry about when you're picking juries. His jurors will say, well, there's no amount of money, therefore I should award no amount of money. And you have to make them understand that the remedy system in our country is not an eye for an eye justice system, but it's a remedy that is uh, monetary recovery, uh, full accountability. And if you, you do it that way, that's how our democracy works. But we're not going to go and take someone else and paralyze them and you know give them a brain injury and that type of thing. And so jurors understand we can't turn a blind eye to justice as well. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, Randy, I could talk about this verdict all day, but I know you're a busy guy. Um, I just have one last question. Sure. Young attorney going into his first defense uh, expert, you know, just generally, what are kind of basic tips that you would give them? 
Well, so on the two life care planners, I didn't depose them, but I had a lot of depositions I read. And so reach out to your colleagues to see what have you done? What do you know about this expert? And let me read some of the stuff you've done and then read as much as you can. There's so many lawyers on both on the plaintiff side particular, but defense lawyers can read those books as well that write and adopt your style to what you're reading. Don't adopt someone else's style. Take your style, use who you are and read as much as you can read, listen to as much as you can listen to, learn as much as you can learn and weave that into who you are as a, as a human being. And if you're genuine and you're prepared, you're typically going to do uh, very well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't even say better, right? Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> just, just knowledge bombs left and right. Just, yeah, this is great. Randy, thanks again. You're our first repeat guest, but yeah. obviously uh, we had to have you back on for this one. Yeah. And I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you guys. And appreciate you trying to educate everybody out there. This is an example of, you know, sharing uh, thoughts, ideas, and what works and what doesn't work. So thanks for doing it. Yeah. And when you get your next record-setting verdict, we'll have you back on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I don't think I'm going to beat this one anytime soon. <laughs> you just jinxed yourself. You're, yeah, you're... I know. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank, you so Thank you so much. Thanks, guys.